Luke 1, you can just kind of scan down. Um, hold your place at verse 34. If you remember last week, we left off at 33. So we'll be picking up at 34. Everyone there? Anyone need more time? Anyone need a Bible? No? All right. Let's pray, and then we'll get started. Jesus, just um, just thankful for this time, thankful for the build-up to um, what Christmas is intended to represent, and, and just that anticipation that was felt in the days um, of your birth, and pray that that would translate into an anticipation of your return for us today. And so just <clears throat> mindful this week as I've been just thinking about how much you pursue us. And so um, just thank you for that. Thank you that unlike all the false gods of world religions, you're not a God that says, make it to me. You're a God that comes to us. And so uh, would that just be set in our hearts? Would uh, the crazy nature of Christmas be set to the backdrop of a king who humbled himself and was born a baby. And all that that means for us, not only just theologically, but practically today. And so you can minister to your people in ways that I could never fathom. So I just pray that tonight you would, again, pursue your people, pursue the hearts of your people, cause us to come alive to this idea that you're alive. So we love you. Thank you for what you've done. Thank you for what you're doing. We thank you for what you're still yet to do. In Jesus' name, amen. It was a bad decision to go with the sweatshirt. You can tell already. It's all right. We're going to do it. So if you weren't here last week, um, we're just doing a quick two-week series, an unorthodox Christmas series, if you will. I'm, I'm a fan of doing things in an unorthodox manner. And so after Zach and I ended Hebrews and we had two weeks before we take two weeks off, Christmas Eve and New Year's, so couldn't really end with the birth, which is totally fine, but just kind of contemplating how do you do a two-week pre-Christmas series. And um, just kind of wanted to take a look at this idea of eternity past and eternity future. And so we named it, we've got a graphic on the video, I don't think we have it here, but we named the series The Coming King. And so, again, a little unorthodox, but um, for those of you that are here last week, I hope that that made sense as to why we were taking a look at eternity past. And for those of you that weren't here, we took a look at this concept of, of Jesus's existence in eternity past. Today we're going to take a look at Jesus's existence into eternity future. Because as I said last week, look, let's be honest. A humble birth is not that miraculous in those days. It's not. There's, there's children today that are born into utterly impoverished conditions, to parents that were ill-prepared or ill-equipped. There are children born to parents that were not yet wed. There are children that are born, as I said, into very, very humble beginnings. So it's not much distinct about a birth in a manger unless the one being born truly deserved more. Unless the one being born was not just another baby 
because as many babies have been born into humble beginnings. But if in fact it was a king being born into humble beginnings. And so as I said last week, what I wanted to do just in these two weeks real fast, again, in a bit of an unorthodox manner. So if you're here hoping for like the ins and the outs of the Christmas story, you're not going to get it. You didn't get it last week. You're not going to get it this week. But what I'm doing is trying to set a majestic backdrop to a humble entrance. Because unless there's a majestic backdrop, it's not really out of the ordinary to have a humble entrance. And so last week we took a look at Jesus and eternity past. We took a look at the fact that in the beginning God created and that was Jesus who went to work. It was Jesus who created everything, conferring with Colossians 1.16. It says all things were created through him and for him. We see that again in John 1.1 where it says in the beginning the In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus has always been. He invented time. It wasn't that Jesus began. It was that he then invented the concept of time. It's that God always has been, and Jesus always has been. He has always existed. He always will. And then it says, in the beginning, God created. And Colossians 1.16 tells us that Jesus did the creating. doesn't make him any less God, but in the Trinity, in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, they are equal yet with separate roles. It's a picture of the family. My wife and I are equal, yet she has a different role as a wife. She has a different calling as a wife than I do as a husband. The kids are equal with us, equal in value and worth before God. But they have a different calling on their life. No one would say that the three of us are all the same in our roles, though the world would increasingly have you believe that. That husband and wife are interchangeable and that children should be friends. And they don't necessarily need parents. They just need good friends. But Father, Son, Holy Spirit, in the Trinity, we see that they are equal, yet they have separate roles. God the Father didn't die on a cross for your sins. The Holy Spirit didn't die on a cross for your sins. Doesn't make Jesus any less God But it says that in the beginning, God created, and we know that Jesus was the one who created. I was thinking about this again yesterday. I went snowboarding for the first time in a couple years, just sitting up at the top of Big Bear Snow Summit, and just remembering that Jesus physically, Jesus literally put the mountains together, put the lakes together. It says that he separated the seasons. He separated the light and the dark. Every time the sun comes up, be reminded that Jesus made it so Every time the sun goes down, remember that Jesus separated the light from the dark. Every time you see the mountain, remember that he formed it. Every time you see the ocean, that he separated it from the land. Every time you see a weird-looking animal, remember that Jesus is creative. He's a good artist. I'm a scuba diver as well. There's some weird-looking stuff underwater. And you can't help but giggle underwater like Jesus knew what he was doing with that one. That thing looks freaky, right? And they're just weird, and they've got, like, weird things that come out of weird places. You're like, I think Jesus was having fun with that one, right? Just remember this, as he created all the creeping things, he created everything, he created us in his image and likeness. And so we see that Jesus was already at work. In the beginning, God created him. People are like, oh, Jesus is in the Old Testament. Are you kidding me? He's in the first sentence. In the beginning, God created and Jesus went to work. And so this idea that he was creator and that he created us in his image, he created our first parents, Adam and Eve. And as I've said last week, it took two chapters for us to screw the whole thing up. Everything was perfect. There was marriage, there was work, there was a garden, there was a husband, there was a wife, there was a man, there was a woman. There was purpose, there was relationship, there was fellowship, there was communion with God. Perfect communion with God. Only two men to work walk this earth have known perfection, Adam and Jesus. Adam knew it, and Adam blew it. He lost it. He and Eve chose to be their own God, 
The same lie that Satan believed and got him kicked out of heaven is the same lie that Adam and Eve believed and got him kicked out of the garden. And every day that we rebel against the things of God, we commit the same sin. We love reading Genesis 3 and being like, what idiots, they had everything. Amazing, it could have just been awesome. And yet every day we choose to say, we'll be like God. We'll say what's right or wrong. We will be God. And we commit cosmic treason. And so in Genesis 3, the fall takes place. And as we talked about last week, God didn't let Adam and Eve for a minute, he didn't let them for a minute sit in their sin without promising a solution. He came in and in Genesis 3, immediately after the fall, he preached them the gospel. Bible nerd word is protevangelium. It's the first gospel is when he said, I will send a solution because something had been broken. There is a problem Every problem needs a solution. And in the fall, I would submit to you that three things were broken. In a macro sense, in a big sense, lots of things were broken. But first and foremost, our relationship to God was broken. It was severed. Perfect fellowship, perfect communion, imperfection, created, living, acting, working, being married as they were intended to be. And when they sinned against a holy and perfect God, we fractured, we severed that relationship with God. We severed perfect fellowship with God. And in that fracture, we reset our eternal trajectory. If Adam and Eve had never sinned, they would simply go on to live at peace with God forever. Salvation was theirs and they lost it. And now the Bible says that all of us, all of us, every single one here, contrary to what your college professor taught you about everyone's innocent and they learn to be bad, the Bible says we are born children of wrath and that we are enemies of God. It's tough to hear. You saw my kids in here. You saw little Maisie. And we love and she's cute, but she's a sinner who is by nature a child of wrath. It's tough to say, but I can say it about my own kids. You have to grip reality. As cute as she is, she isn't innocent and learns to be bad. We're born sinners, infected with diseased blood from Adam. And so not only has our relationship been severed in the fall, then our eternal trajectory from eternity and communion with God to damnation and separation from God. And so now our salvation has been fractured because sin has entered the world and the earth itself is fractured in the fall. I, I've used this example. People, I'm from the Midwest. Tornadoes happen consistently. I used to live in Tornado Alley. Out here we have earthquakes. In island nations, they've got tsunamis. We've got hurricanes. They call them, quote, natural disasters. But what that is, is that the Bible tells us that the earth is groaning to be reconciled. Even the earth itself, that was part of Adam's curse. It says the ground's going to be hard to work now. And the earth itself is fractured. That's why natural disasters happen. The earth isn't perfect anymore. And Romans tells us that it wants to be. Very creation itself. We're higher creation and even lower creation. The earth groans to be reconciled to God. So our fellowship with God is severed. Our salvific trajectory is severed and fractured. And even the earth itself 
is broken and fractured and rumbling. And it's impossible for us. It's impossible. Listen, it's impossible for us on our own to restore our relationship to God. It's impossible for us to redeem our salvation. It's impossible for us to renew a broken world. I'll say it again. It's impossible for us to restore our relationship with God. It's impossible for us to redeem our salvation. It's impossible for us to renew fully and completely a broken world. That's the problem. And you see it everywhere. Sin is the root of all problems. You're going to walk out, and if you have a car, you're going to unlock it, right? Why do you have a lock on your car? Sin. You may speed and get pulled over. Why do we have police officers? Sin. Why do we have judges? Why do we have prisons? Why do we have correctional facilities? Sin. Why do we have rape? Sin. Why do we have divorce? Sin. Why do we even have disease? It's not God saying, you're bad, so I'm going to give you disease. But the fact that we have disease is the result of sin. The fact that we have earthquakes is the result of sin. That's the problem. And we are unable to restore, to redeem, to renew. And so it had to be God. It had to be God himself. It had to be God who could do what no sinner can do. And so again, last week we took a look at Jesus' eternity past. We took a look at him as the creator. And then we took a look at the fall. We took a look at Christophanies. We took a look at places in the, in the Old Testament where Jesus, I'm not, it's not like, oh, it was a cool story about him or, oh, we think we heard something. It was where Jesus literally, historically, perfectly showed up in the Old Testament. Christophanies, where Jesus actually appeared in the Old Testament. And we see this idea that that in creation, Jesus created us. In the fall, God came after us. In the Old Testament, it's not like he went dark. Jesus was coming after his people. He was literally showing up before them. He was pursuing them. He wasn't given the name Jesus until he was born. He was known as the Son of Man, the Son of God, the Angel of the Most High. Lots of different names and titles for him in the Old Testament. The Son of God was coming after his people. And so it was this idea that God is a God who pursues. You have to know this. When when someone tells you that all religions are basically the same, none of them teach that God went to the extent to the depths to the darkness that the one true living God went to to save people to save people who are now by trajectory headed away from him God has to come into the scene he has to repair that relationship he has to redeem the salvation of those who would accept his gift and he has to renew a broken world it had to be God And he's a pursuant God in the garden, in the Old Testament. He comes on Christmas and he's coming back again. Jesus is the only God who pursues his people. 
consistently over and over and over. And so we see creator, we see pursuant as Jesus in the eternity past. And now I want to talk with this majestic backdrop looking back. I want to talk about this majestic backdrop looking forward. Because again, what I'm trying to kind of do is paint this massive inverted pyramid that I want to show you how big it is over here and how big it is over here. And all of that, I pray, gives you a a, a greater appreciation for how it all hits the ground in Christmas. How this creator God came to be born a baby and how amazing that truly is. How this reigning king comes back to this day on Christmas that we celebrate. And so it's this big inverted pyramid, this Jesus of eternity past, this Jesus of eternity future. And what that means for the humility, what that means for the beauty of what happened when he showed up as a baby on Christmas. And so we'll get to Luke here in a second. Now, some of you are going to laugh, and I think I forget who was reminding me. It might have been Zach that reminded me that there was a time in my preaching career where I was known for quoting Revelation 19 almost every sermon. I joke that it's my, I joke that it's my favorite chapter. I think I've honestly gone like two years without really talking much about it. But what I want to do is I want to set this backdrop. This look, if it, if Jesus feels larger than life, it's because he is. It's because he is. Never let anyone leave Jesus in heaven, but never let anyone only place him on earth. If he seems larger than life, he is. That's what makes the fact that he'd be born on this earth so amazing. And so we talked about where he was for all of eternity, what he did before we even existed, how he came to his people. And it it comes up to, toward the New Testament, toward this concept of Christmas. And I want to skip right over it because it's not a Christmas message. And I want to talk about where he currently is, how he currently sits, what he is currently getting ready to do. Because the Jesus of eternity past, the Jesus of eternity future, it's so big, yet became so small to go after you, to restore a relationship, to redeem your salvation, and to renew a broken world. That's what makes Christmas so amazing. We were all babies, but we've never been God. And so... Again, in quite possibly the most unorthodox pre-Christmas sermon you've ever heard, Revelation 19, arguably my favorite chapter, but for very, very selfish, mostly violent reasons. Um, because this is, this is one of those, I taught through the entirety of Revelation. Dave and I were joking about that, how at one point I, I was trying to get through a chapter and it took like an hour and 20 minutes because I was committed to every single word in that book, and it's crazy. Spielberg couldn't come close to doing this on a film. It's absolute chaos and madness and beauty. And, and most of it's actually out of the Old Testament. Something like 70-something percent is just Old Testament references. You've got you've to take a look at it. But what I want to pull out is this picture, this picture that we have that Scripture gives us of how Jesus sits right now. Because I don't believe he just suddenly began looking like um, we're going to talk about tonight. I believe that's currently how he sits. 
And again, we've titled this series, The Coming King. And as we lead up to Christmas, we take a look at the coming of his birth. But you need to remember that we should have that same anticipation in his return. That the Messiah would come. And by the way, that the Messiah is still coming. And so it says this. And, and you know, tell you what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let you keep your eyes open for a little bit, but I want you to close them at some point. We've done that once, and I think it actually helps. It says this. So in verse 18, it talks about, or chapter 18, it talks about the fall of Babylon, the rebellion against God, and it has fallen. We're toward the end of the end times. Chapter 19 is near the end of the end, and it is near the end of what we know, what we feel, what we experience in a broken and fractured world. And so it talks about the finality of Babylon's faults, that, that the rebellion is being crushed. And so the author of Revelation, the apostle John, from a cave on an island is whisked up by the Spirit, a picture of the rapture of the church, some of us believe. And he's given this book, and he tells, he's given the picture of what will happen in the end times when Jesus returns. And in Revelation 19, it says, After these things that I heard, a loud voice. You can turn there if you want, you don't have to. And it says, After these things, which is the fall of Babylon... I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. For true and righteous are his judgments, because he has judged the great harlot, it means prostitute, who corrupted the earth with her fornication. He's talking about the rebellion, no single woman or man. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her. Those are the martyrs. Again, they say, Alleluia, her smoke rises up forever and ever. The 24 elders of the f- and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who sat on the throne saying, Amen and Alleluia. And by the way, Amen means let it be so. So every time you say Amen after a, a, a nice line in a sermon, remember what you're saying before God is that let it be so. It says, amen and hallelujah. Then a voice came from the throne saying, praise our God, all you his servants and those who fear him, both great and small. And I heard as it were the voice of a great multitude and the sound of many waters. Anyone been to a huge dam? Anyone been out on the storm surf? And that mesmerizing, therapeutic, yet at the same time awe-inspiring and somewhat scary sound of what water can do? And it says, like many waters and the sound of mighty thunderings. Anyone been to Texas for a thunderstorm? This is the realest I can come with. If you haven't been through a Texas thunderstorm, you need to drive there during thunder season and just sit and wait. Don't go to school. Don't go to work. Don't come to church. Go sit. Okay? It's a joke. Okay? But you should seriously do it. You need to sit. I'm from the Midwest, Chicago, Minneapolis. I know a good thunderstorm. Texas arguably has some of the best. But there are times when thunder hits and you can feel it in your bones. Crack of lightning is cool, but when thunder booms and you literally feel your soul shake, you feel very small. You feel tiny in the ocean, don't you, when the waves pick up? You feel tiny when thunderstorms rage. You don't even feel safe in a house. You're like, I think it could take it out. 
It could have its way. A thunderstorm can come with mass. It can take care of structures if it wants to. It says it's like the sound of many waters. It's like many thundering saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Some of you come here feeling dirty for what you've done this week, for what you've done this month, for what you've done in your past. You need to know that Jesus is laying fine linens on you. He's purifying you. He's cleansing you. He's cleaning you. He's making you whole again. Though we still struggle with sin on earth, this is the process that Christians are going through. Every day that you get closer to Jesus, you feel worse about what you've done, but you feel better about what he's done. And he begins to clean you and says, they've been arrayed in fine linen. He says, then he said to me, write this, he's talking to John, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the lamb. So clearly heaven begins with two things. Did you know this? It begins with a worship ceremony. Why do you think we start our service with a worship ceremony? Some you think it's just tradition. It's not, it's, bib- it's biblical. When Jesus says enough is enough, a worship ceremony commences and they're singing and it's like storms. It's like thunder. It's like water. They're singing. It's a worship ceremony and then it's a marriage supper. If we do, we do a lot of things wrong in the American church. One of them is we don't have parties enough. We should party more in the church. Why? Because that's how heaven begins. It's with, have you ever been, wedding dinners are not like cute or like informal. They are amazing parties. It's the reason you go and then you leave after the food, right? You do. Like, oh, toasts, nah. Like, why do we go? We go for the dinner, don't you? And you're like, yeah, I like the people, they're all right, but what's the food? What are we serving? And heaven begins with a worship ceremony and a supper, a marriage party. He says, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true sayings of God. This is John before an angel. He says, I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, the angel said to him, see that you do not do that. I am your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. We don't worship angels. We worship the God who created angels. It says, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. That's how you know if prophecy is real, is if the answer and the end, the conclusion of it is Jesus. Now, I want you to go with me on this because I think it's pertinent because I certainly don't want to read this and have you, unfortunately, looking at me. I want you to go into a place where you can begin to envision this for yourself. And we've done this before, and I think it's healthy. And people are like, yeah, it's kind of cheesy, maybe, but we're going to do it anyways. And I get to keep my eyes open, so I get to look at you and have that awkward interaction if you're not doing it, Okay. Everyone say amen. I mean, you just said, let it be so. So you're actually going to do it now, okay? It says, so I want you to close your eyes. This is what John has been given. There's only one reason that this baby is so miraculous at Christmas. It's because this baby is the God of eternity past and eternity future. It's the God that sits on a throne right now. 
knowing the thoughts and the intents of your heart. He's got every hair on your head numbered. He's got every tear you've ever cried in a bottle. He knows that you need a restored relationship with God. He knows that you need to be redeemed from an eternal trajectory. And he knows that he needs to renew a broken world. He needs to do these things. Why? Because we can't. And John looks up and he's shown what Jesus looks like. And this is the end time, so this is what, this is how Jesus makes his entrance far from the days of the baby, far from the days of the cross. This is the coming king. He says, Now when I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he, that's Jesus, who sat on him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes were like flames. His eyes were like flames of fire. And on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no one knew except himself. And he was clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. John 1 1 says, The Word was with God, and the Word was God. It says, And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on the white horse. Unlike today, where generals are in the behind the troops, Jesus is out in front of the troops. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come gather together for the supper of the great God. You can open your eyes. That you may eat, the birds may eat of the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains and the flesh of the mighty men and the flesh of the horses and all those who sit on them and the flesh to all people, free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast, the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. This is the incessant, incurable insanity of Satan. This is the incessant, incurable insanity of rebellion against God. It says, Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone, and the rest were killed with the sword, which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. You need to know that the church is then raptured and taken. People are still saved through the tribulation. They are martyred through the tribulation. But this is when Jesus says enough is enough. And the Bible tells us that he comes and he preaches and people are dying. If he seems larger than life, it's because he is. Thank goodness. 
I can show you where the bones of Gandhi live. I can show you where the bones of Krishna live. I can show you where the bones of Buddha live. I can show you the, the bones of L. Ron Hubbard. I can tell you where the bones are to Muhammad. Yet no one on earth can find the bones of Jesus. Because he's currently on a throne, active, alive, holding back with all the wrath that he absorbed on the cross. That's why it says he comes to tread the winepress of the fury and the wrath of God. Why? Because he absorbed it on the cross. Only he can give it back out. But he's giving people time. And we love to just say, Jesus, come back. But we weren't so hot to trot before we were saved, were we? I'm thankful that he's being patient. He's going after more people. But you need to know at some point, the king says enough is enough. And he comes. And so, we see King Jesus, as he is now, coming. And the perspective that I simply want is from eternity past to eternity future. This miraculous God, this amazing, pursuant creator God, comes to his creation to fix what's broken. And in Luke 1, verse 34, so we see that Gabriel had come. He had prophesied that Mary would conceive a child. And Mary said to the angel, how can this be? Since I do not know a man, she truly, absolutely, 100% was a virgin. She says, How can this be, since I do not know a man? And the angel answered her. Gabriel said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore, also, that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. The word overcome literally means to cover with a cloud. This isn't domination. As feminists try to tell you in the culture, this isn't the rape of Mary, as the modern feminist movement will tell you. There is, I, I sat at a Catholic college in Christian courses hearing that God raped Mary. This has nothing to do with overpowering. This is overshadowing and protecting. This is the cloud of God's Shekinah glory in Exodus 16, Exodus 19, Exodus 24, Exodus 34, Exodus 40. This is a pattern God has always used. This is a method God has always used in presenting his glory before people. This is the cloud of the transfiguration of Jesus when he went up on the hill to be transfigured, when he went from his humanity back into his divinity for a short time. Matthew 17, Mark 9, Luke 9. David Guzik says this, this cloud is a visible manifestation of the glory and presence of God. This means that the same power of God that was used with Moses and others in the Old Testament is now going to do a unique work in the life of Mary. God is getting ready to come to his people again in a most amazing way. We took a look at the Christophanies. He's never been a fan of subtlety. I don't know if you know that about Jesus. Humble, yeah. Subtlety, not so much. Can we agree on that? Like, 
homie was in a furnace, right? Like in a burning bush, straight wrestled with a dude, right? He didn't come up and say, hey, how's it going? In all humility, but very rarely in any subtlety, the God of eternity past, the God of eternity future is now coming to his people yet again to restore, to redeem, to renew. So he says that Mary will be overshadowed. Therefore also that the Holy One, and holy means set apart. Some of you think it means separated. The title Pharisee. Have you ever noticed Jesus was always hooking and jabbing with those guys? The title Pharisee literally means separated one. Therefore, they separated themselves from people. They would go down a block and walk up a street that didn't have a dirty leper. They were pious. They were self-righteous. The Bible tells us they knew they were liars in their heart, but they never let it out. Pharisee means separated one. Separate from the culture. Don't engage in your faith. Don't minister to others. Don't evangelize. Don't ask someone to come to church. Your faith is your thing. Pharisees believed in their title, which was separated one. Holy means set apart. And Jesus came into the mess, yet was set apart within it. People are like, what's it like to be a Christian? I don't know. If only we had like an example. Right? Like someone that did it right. Like someone that went into dark parties yet was without sin. The religious people don't like to talk about that, Jesus. That he went to that dark Friday night party with the tax collectors and the prostitutes. Yet without sin. Tempted in every way, yet without sin. He went into the brokenhearted. He went into the outcast. He befriended the outcast. He fed the hungry. He healed the lepers. He wasn't separated from society. He was set apart within it. In the world, not of the world. So he says he'll be holy one. Set apart from all other babies being born. This one came to do something unique. That only God could do because sinners couldn't do it for themselves. He says he'll be the holy one who will be born called the son of God. This is that Old Testament connector we talked about last week. The name Jesus meant nothing at this time. It didn't mean a thing. But when the angel says he'll be called the son of God, every Jew, Mary included, knew what this meant. Mary and all faithful Jews knew what the angel was saying, that this baby would be equal to God. Keep in mind, we studied Daniel 3 last week as one of the Christophanies. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to bow down, did they not? King says, I'm going to create some idols. Everyone bows. Everyone bows. Daniel's got three friends in the back being like, we're good. So we won't bow for you. We'll bow before God. And that's it. King's furious. Says, grab them, throw them in the fire, turn it up crank it up seven times. The dudes that were throwing them in to the furnace died. It was so hot. Threw them in there. Then they looked 
He says, look, he answered. King's like, hey, how many people we throw in there? He's like, three. Three? Three. Trace? Trace amigos. Three. He says, look, I see four. I see four men loose walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. And Jesus stands in the furnace, and he protects his people in the furnace, and he stands next to you today saying, I'll protect you from the furnace. This was clearly an Old Testament connector that all Jews would know that this baby was different, set apart, holy, equal to God as the Son of God. It says, now indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, and the angel brings more evidence of God's miraculous work. He says, now indeed, Elizabeth, who was super old and barren, so she had two strikes against her in terms of childbearing. Age doesn't bode well, nor does being barren. It says, now indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her old age, and this is now the sixth month for her who was called barren. Verse 37, it says, For with God, nothing will be impossible. With God, nothing will be impossible. I've got three quick notes on this. There's probably 487. With God, people who won't pursue God will be pursued by God. Some of you think, but I've, I've pursued God. Romans 3.11 says, There is none who understands. Listen, Romans 3.11 says, There is none who seeks after God. God came after you. But I remember, I, I as clear as day, all of a sudden, I felt, you felt what? You felt like someone turned your heart? There is no one that seeks God. But I'll tell you this, God is seeking you. God is pursuing you, the creator of the universe, the Jesus of eternity past, the Jesus of eternity future is pursuing his people. See, I started by saying it's impossible for us to restore a relationship to God. But the Bible says with God, with God, nothing is impossible. With God, broken people will be restored by God. Psalm 23.3 says, He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for His namesake. With God and through the birth of Jesus, we can have a second birth in Jesus. John 3.3, and look, I hate what the term, I don't hate, I loathe what the term born again has become but you need to know it is absolutely biblical. I get that there's a lot of, quote, born-again groups or born-again loudmouths or born-again freaks with picket signs protesting dead military folks and homosexuals. I get what, quote, born-again has been taken by the culture, but you need to know Jesus himself says, most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. If you can hear my voice, listen, if you can hear me, you've been born 
Jesus says, that's not enough. By nature, children of wrath. But if you can hear me, the good news is this. You've been born and can be born again. Jesus will place his spirit in you if you but accept a free gift. And I'm just thinking of Christmas. What it means for us practically in spite of the theology of eternity past and eternity future. I just want us to remember that Jesus has been where you are. No God of any false religion can claim as much. They get to make up whatever they want about a fake God and no one writes that story. No one puts as the central point of their faith the complete and utter humiliation and destruction of their God because that's a God you won't want to follow. But it had to be God. It had to be God on the cross. If God punishes a sinner, it's because they deserve it. It solves nothing for anyone else. If he puts me on a cross, if people hang me for my sins, it has no effect on you. None. My death can do nothing for you. People were crucified before Jesus. People were crucified after Jesus. But something, like I said last week, something different happened about 2017 years ago that we reset our entire calendars. No one on the planet thinks this earth is only 2017 years old. Nor did we start calendaring 2017 years ago. Atheist, agnostic, Buddhist, Christian, don't care. Everyone knows something big happened about 2017 years ago. We can all agree on that. And it had to be God. Doing what no sinner could do for themselves. We deserve death. Our deaths accomplish nothing. But the death of one who deserved not can accomplish what's impossible for us can be possible with God. Jesus has been where you are. Hebrews tells us, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, who is tempted in every way, tempted in every way as we are yet without sin. You need to know that every time you're tempted, every Time I, I spoke to the college group about this one time. Every time you're tempted, every time you come up on that line between temptation and sin, you need to know every time you come up and you stop and you think, if you stop and you think at that line of temptation, you need to know that Jesus has stood on that line with you. He has stood there before. No God of any false religion can say that. You can say, God, it's awful. He can say, I know. I've been there. Yet without sin, but tempted in every way. I, 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 I stressed to the group when I spoke on him. I want you to remember that when you're staring at that line, I want you to think that Jesus is there with you. He has been there with you. It will transform your ability in your own flesh to just simply jump over and head deep down into sin. 
that Jesus will walk to the edge with you. He has walked to the edge with you. He knows. No God knows anything of a false religion that we go through. They have to keep him at a distance to control people. Jesus says, I've walked to that line. I've been tempted in every way, but I was without sin. Jesus has been where you are. It's one of the miraculous things about the birth of Christ, that the Jesus of eternity past and eternity future would come here to experience this, to provide a solution. It's impossible to restore our relationship with God. It's impossible to redeem our salvation. It's impossible to renew a broken world. And Jesus came as the solution. Jesus is currently the solution. Jesus is still coming as the solution. Jesus alone restores our relationship with God. There's two islands. There's two islands. There's God and there's the world. It had to be God that built a bridge between the two. It had to be God. We can't span that chasm. God is perfect and holy. Even if we could get over there, we would be rejected in our own flesh. It had to be Jesus to say, I'll do what no sinner can do for themselves. I'll bridge. Jesus came to redeem our salvation. God is a just God, therefore a penalty had to be paid. But as I said, if he simply kills Mark for Mark's sin, it does, it's of no effect to you. So when Jesus comes, perfect, lives a perfect life, and then he says, no man takes my life, he says, I'll lay it down. That baby that grew to be a man says, I have perfect, eternal, holy blood, untainted by the seed of Adam. That's why he had no earthly father. His bloodline ran direct to heaven. He said, spill this blood on their behalf. And they strung him up on a cross and they beat him to a pulp. And they mocked him with a crown of thorns. And they stripped him naked and they left him there to die slowly while defecating on himself, while he was mocked and spit upon. The Bible says he made him who knew no sin to be sin. He said he took all that sin from every one of you. He took it. He took it. He pulled it. He absorbed it. And then what does it say that God did with him? In that moment, he made him who knew no sin to be sin. So there are two people in all of eternity before themselves three with the Holy Spirit. There's God the Father and there's Jesus and Jesus becomes all the sin of all time forever. And he becomes sin. So what does God do with Jesus as your sin? He kills him. The Bible says that the cross was first and foremost God's idea. And as your sin, he crushed Jesus and his body was broken and his blood was shed. Innocent blood was shed. Now that has every effect for you. That now your penalty was then paid and redeemed. And it's impossible to renew a broken world. If you keep reading in Revelation, 
you go on to see that Jerusalem, heaven itself, the new Jerusalem, heaven, comes to earth. It says that Jesus goes back to the hill that he ascended from, and he breaks it in half, and he pushes it apart. My interpretation of that is Jesus' gangster way of saying, I'm here to stay this time. He breaks the mountain, he pushes it in half, he says, I'm here. And the rest of Revelation goes on to talk about how he restores the entirety of the world. We go back to perfect creation, perfect communion for eternity with God. It's impossible for us to restore, impossible for us to redeem, it's impossible for us to renew. Those are the problems. Jesus came as the solution. Jesus is currently the solution, and Jesus is coming as the solution. For with God, nothing is impossible. And so I pray that as we take a look at this expanse of who Jesus is, that when it comes to Christmas, the gravity of what takes place in a little baby, this majestic backdrop sets the tone for a very humble entrance. Because in that day, he was coming. And today, he still is coming. Amen? All right, let's pray. Jesus, simply thank you for that. Thank you that you authored a gospel unfathomable by anyone else. That the creator of the universe, the eternal king on a throne, would pursue his people tirelessly coming to us in the fall, coming to us as your people in the Old Testament, coming to us as a baby, coming to us by sending your spirit. And one day, maybe in 30 seconds, maybe in 3,000 years, that the king will say, enough is enough. It's time for my return. We thank you, Jesus, that even now we can taste heaven in the fact that we can have a restored relationship with God that we can have a redeemed salvation now, that we can begin to see how you're renewing the earth through the church and through the hearts of Christians as we work in the culture, not of the culture, but in the culture for renewal as a foreshadowing of what you will do with the entirety of creation when you renew it once and for all. Jesus, thank you that God that big, that you that big who sits on a throne currently listening to these words that you would humble yourself, be born a virgin, though you were the coming king. Jesus, we love you, we praise you for what you've done, for what you're doing, for what you have yet to do. It's in your name we pray. Amen.